This is The Red Center, a podcast about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the first three episodes of The Handmaid's Tale, which just came out this week. If you haven't seen those yet, consider this your spoiler warning. Who's listening to a podcast about this if they haven't seen the show? That's (laughs) weird. (laughs) Um, Every week on the show, we'll be focusing our discussion around one central topic. So later today, we're going to talk about themes of feminism in The Handmaid's Tale and whether it's even a feminist show at all. But first, I think it makes sense to start with what's happening in the show in general. Uh, This is, again, the spoiler stuff. We're going to talk about what happens. Right. So they dropped uh, three episodes on us at once. Uh, So it's like about three hours, which is a lot to give to us. Um, And they do a lot of exposition right off the bat. So I guess we should start there. Yeah. And they give you a ton of what happens in the book itself already, which is sort of interesting to me. And we'll talk about, I'm sure, is like, where do you go from here if you're giving us so much of of what happens in the book? So maybe um, do we want to back up and talk about how each of us came to the book? That's on our little bullet notes thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I could start. So I read read the book probably 10 years ago for the first time. I did not read it in high school, which a lot of people did, nor did I read it in college, though. I it was like referred to I I studied literature in college. So um, and it's like a linchpin of like feminist theory, but I never read it. I only read sort of critiques of it. Um, It was like one of like four books that I sort of had on a list of like, oh, eventually I'm going to get to these because they're always referred to. Um, and so I read it, you know, probably 10 years ago. Um, it was not my first Margaret Atwood book. It was probably like my fifth or sixth. I thought it was perfect. I tore through it in two days and then I reread it again about a month ago and it is completely different than I remember it being the first time. Um, so that's where, that's my, you know, I'm a, I'm a long time Margaret Atwood lover, but I sort of came to this book late. I had sort of the opposite. This was the first Atwood book that I read, and I did read it, I think it was in high school, um, on my own time as opposed to, like, for school or anything. Um, and I remember it being a, like, very naive high school person being like, this could never happen. This seems so unrealistic. And today I reread it. Actually, I listened to the audiobook um, narrated by Claire Danes, and it is amazing. I highly recommend that audio Everyone book. loves it's it. really yeah. good. Um, and I was driving, and I just, like, wanted to drive my car off the cliff because this is so re- – I can't handle this. This is it too is much. Really, really terrifying. It's horrifying. And, like, even just some of the moments where they talk about sort of, like, how it all happened really slowly and, like, first it was this and then it was this. And I just was like, oh, my God, I can't deal with this right now. Um, so, yeah, it's that's sort of interesting that, like, we oh, – and then I read a bunch of Atwood after that because I liked that book so much. Yeah, I mean, I think – yeah, I I mean, my sort of emotional experience reading it was definitely similar to yours in that, like, I read it very much as like a, you know, as like almost science fiction or whatever ten, 10 years ago. And now I think not just because of like current world events, though, certainly I think that plays into it, but also just I'm an older person. I have a child. I'm married. I think my like life stage has changed and I've become more like funereal generally. So I think... I think that like when I read it now, I'm like, oh, this is, this could definitely happen. I think, um, I think it seems, uh, if you have read the book, um, I think that it, it seems almost more, there are a lot of, you know, the world, like how it goes about, like how the whole thing, you know, happens is, is much less, um, sketched in the book than it is in the television show, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, They sort of have given slightly more detail and painted like the outside world uh, slightly better. Um, And I think that 
it makes it like just completely horrific to watch. I, I've had, um, access to the first three episodes for like a month and it took me like the entire month to watch all three because I would watch one and be like, I can't, I can't watch another one for a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, that's a good segue into sort of talking about some of the sort of brief differences between the show and the book. And we're not assuming that listeners have read the book, so we won't get super into detail here. But I do think one thing that I was curious about when I found out they were making the show and that I think sort of plays into what you're talking about is that in a book sort of, and this is maybe an obvious thing to say, Atwood has complete control over what you see, right? She only shows you a certain very, very small, narrow window into the world, which is sort of from the perspective of this main character Mm -hmm. who in the show is named June or off-red, um, and you, she has that control where she can very finely say, here's what you can look at and here's what you can't, whereas in a TV show, you kind of have to show the space that this woman is walking around in, and you kind of have to show a lot more in order for it to make any sense and to have a visual TV thing. Yeah. So you see a lot more of the world, and you kind of have to get a little bit more of the logistics of, like, how did this happen? When there was, were these things, what did the world look like, and what does it look like now? You know, because in the book, you really don't actually know that much about what anything looks like, because right. you only get it from her perspective. Whereas in the show, you end up in the grocery store, and you have, like, these aisles, and you end up, you know, you see the church being torn down, I think, in the second or third episode. Mm-hmm. And so you get a lot more of that kind of background and also sort of what the world looked like when it all started happening, which is eerily like what the world looks like today, <laughs> which right. is a little bit scary. And there's, you know, there's references to Uber and there's references to all these things that we have now. And um, and then it sort of turns into this nightmare. Right. Um, let's go and just do a really quick uh, recap of episodes one, two and three, which is a lot to get through at this sort of the same time. And I wonder maybe at the end of each episode, we can kind of talk a little bit about our thoughts on on them and sort of how they how they went. Do you want to start with episode one? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll start. So episode one is is it's a pilot, and they I think they do a lot. It moves pretty quickly, and they do a lot to just kind of give you the uh, backstory that you need to know. And they start, like, right off the bat with the kids and the family, and they're running away, and they're in the car, and they're running through the forest, and they get captured, right? That's, like, yes. the first scene, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, you know, speaking of the book, because you don't really get that until much later in the book. Um, right. You don't she really know. She sort of know. leads up to it. You know that something, Yeah. Yeah. And so, but like for this, and it makes sense, I think, completely to do in the show to sort of set the stakes really early on that like this is a mother whose child and husband are missing now and she's been captured, right? That makes total sense to me. And then you get a little bit of the red center and then you sort of, you get a lot of stuff in the first episode just to kind of show you what this world is. And so you get the, you have the sex scene, you have that like, which doesn't come until much later in the book, you have the ceremony Mm -hmm. and the sex scene. Um, You have her meeting her new commander kind of, or like obviously before the sex scene, you have her meeting the commander, you have her meet, you have to do all this introduction right. for like meeting these characters. You meet off Glen at the beginning to kind of like set up, okay, these are the women and this is the sort of arrangement. And, you know, there's this very awkward slow motion sex scene thing. And then <laughs> yes. you also have, um, you have, and I want to talk about the use of slow motion actually in in the show so far because I think it's an interesting theme they're using. But then you also have this participation, which they don't call it a participation in the show, which is what it's called in the books. I think it would sound really cheesy if someone said it. They call it a salvaging. Yes. Um, where they have the the guy let out and he's sort of put in the middle of this ring and the women all kind of like essentially tear him apart and kill him. Um, and he's also, been convicted. Also happens very late in the book. Yeah, exactly. That's like one of the last things that happens in the book. And in the book, in the show, um, our main character is like the first person to really like engage in this because she has just heard out, just found out fr- that her best friend Moira has died or right. is dead, which I actually don't think is true. But Janine tells her that Moira's dead. <laughs> I agree. Um, and then, the, she, then she goes from that to this 
sort of execution, the sort of group execution. And there's a really effective, I think, shot from above that is in all the trailers where you see all the women in their red hats or in their white hats and their red gowns like swarming and kind of this very like biological sort of movement swarm around this guy (laughs) where they essentially kill him. Um, And so they give you in this first episode, they give you a ton of stuff, but it's all very clipped pieces of information. And I watched it with somebody who hadn't read the book. And he was like, when he got to the sex sex scene, when the commander is having sex with her and she's sort of sitting in that weird position where she's sort of like in, um, what is the woman, the wife's name? Uh, It's a two word. It's a two name. Serena Joy. Serena Joy. There we go. Uh, When she's sitting in Serena Joy's kind of like lap, essentially, and and getting fucked, essentially, they uh, my friend was like, what is going on? (laughs) He just was like, what is happening? Because he just had no idea. So I think they give you a lot of world building stuff in this first episode, um, some of which I think is really effective, some of which I think they're just kind of trying to get some information in Mm -hmm. you. So you kind of know this is the world we're operating in. I do think that episode two is much more effective as a like a show episode. Episode. So you want to talk about episode two? Yeah. So episode two, um, what I recall of it, and please feel free to step in because I, again, my, my, like, I'm like sort of, uh, everything's sort of melting together here. Um, most of episode two is, uh, stays in present day. There is only one, um, like, veering back into the past and it is uh one of the most horrific scenes of the show in my opinion which is her remembering the birth of her daughter and um someone in basically her daughter the day that she's born is the only baby in the nursery um and she takes a nap and when she wakes up uh her husband has has gone down the hall to like go off and do something and someone has stolen her baby and the police sort of stop it and you know she gets her baby back but like there's a woman you know whose baby has presumably died who is like wandering out of the hospital trying to steal um her baby which is to me completely horrifying and it's something that as a person who's had a baby you definitely think if i send my baby to the nursery someone is going to steal her um and but for the rest of the episode it is a sort of slow I would say, um, character building episode. Uh, now that is, uh, this is, uh, when the baby is born, correct? Yeah. This is the birthing scene. Right. So basically the, the main two things that happen in the second episode are that Janine gives birth, um, to a baby who is, uh, presumably healthy named Angela. And there is a long scene, um, where, you know, all of the handmaids go and, uh, and uh, sort of participate in this um, sort of like group midwifing scenario um, and the baby is born um, and it is, you know, obviously the why, the, the, the commander's wives are, are overjoyed that a healthy baby has been born um, and the handmaids are all pretty, I would say, emotionally drained from, you know, there's this whole sort of uh, very long scene where they focus on the fact that like, you know, this is Janine's baby, but it's clearly, you know, the baby is going to be taken away from her as soon as it's finished nursing. And it's very sort of upsetting because it's like trans, you know, trans transposed against this like great joy of the fact that like a baby is born in the society where there are clearly like not a lot of healthy babies born. Um, but she's essentially being stolen from her real mother and given to the commander's wife. Um, and the other thing that happens is that the commander, um, Offred's commander, um, through uh, Nick, 
requests her to go into his office and uh, and meet him at night, uh, which she does do. And um, she, uh, you know, goes into this office, which clearly has like a lot of relics of the past. It's mostly books, um, but I believe there's like a globe in there and there are a couple of other things. And um, she assumes that he, I think she says, oh, you know, he probably wants a blowjob or something, um, but he wants to play Scrabble with her. And so there's an extended Scrabble scene. Um, and then there's some other sort of um, friendship development between Offred and Offglen. Um, and Offred, you know, sort of tells her um, about what's going on in the house and how he wants to meet her. Um, and that's, I think that's, is that, is there anything else really? There's like a big reveal at the end when Off Glenn is gone, right? So she comes out, oh, they do the Scrabble yeah. scene, and then there's like that music, which I actually like was like, what is going on? Because she comes out of the house and all of a sudden they start playing that song, Don't You Forget About Me. Yes, and which is I was the like, of The Breakfast Club. <laughs> yeah, and I was just kind of like, it was so jarring to me in that moment yeah. where I was like, what is going on? And then she comes out of the gate and she expects that she's going to tell Off Glenn this thing that she's learned about the commander going to Washington, and then it turns out to be a different woman. I thought that actually was like a really well done moment Amazing. where it's like super chilling Amazing. where she's like oh you know did she get you know re you know reposted so soon and the woman just gives her this dead cold stare and is like I am off Glenn and right. it was just like oh and it's horrifying <laughs> and it's it's all it's basically it's with with you know um uh, despite like obviously in the book the the song is not there but it's a very shocking scene in the book as well um and I think that they did it super well um and they actually end, we can move into talk, talking about the third episode, but they also end the third episode with a very, like, um, shocking, like, musical interlude, which I would like to talk about once we have done this. Um, yeah. Talked about the third episode. Yeah. So it's funny. They don't do it in the first one, I don't think. But the no. second two both end with, like, these very specific musical choices, um, yes. which, like... Yeah, we can talk about. Um, so, yeah, so the third episode starts with um, basically essentially comes out that the people think that Offred is pregnant. So she hasn't right. had a period in a little while and um, everyone is super excited because this is a big deal. And she kind of I think you can tell from her facial expressions like knows that this is like not really what's happening. She just is like, right. a couple days late. Um, and then we get a little bit more of the backstory too. this is the episode where we get the fact that they freeze all the accounts, all the women's accounts mm-hmm. um, and they fire all the women like kind of on the same day and so you see her when she's June lose her job and like lose all her money and you get you sort of get a little bit more of Luke as like this kind of I think to me like very funny problematic ally where he's like trying to be supportive but also like the women are like fuck you um I do think it's interesting and I think they're going to use this in the future I don't know if you've noticed this but we get very very few shots of Luke's face like his actual like straight on face and I think that we're going to get this this is going to come back later when because in the book she talks about she's starting to forget what he looks like um and I think yeah, that that's going to come up in the show, too, because they I think they're specifically not giving us a ton of like full on like Luke as a you, you don't see his face very often. You see a lot of side yeah. profile. You see a lot of him moving around, but you don't actually see him very much. I think and I think related to that, you also do not see her daughter and her daughter is actually in these scenes in these flashbacks where um, the accounts are frozen and she loses her job. Her daughter comes up like over and over again um, and she's basically deleted from that part of the show. They didn't show her. He comes in, Luke comes in and says, ah, it took a while, but I I got her to go to sleep. So I think you're right. I think that it's, and I I think that these are, I don't think they're just like, oh, it's problematic. You know, we don't want to have deal with a kid in the scene. Um, I think. No, this is a choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So then they, um, then we actually get this whole other scene where we actually, like you said, we follow off Glenn to this like whole other part of the show and of the world that in the book is not there at all. Where you see, you know, she goes in front of this tribunal kind of thing yes. um, with like a court, which is definitely not mentioned at all in the book and is like really interesting to say like, and and I guess that she's caught and you know, we're, we're to think in the show originally that she's caught for being a member of the resistance. And in fact, we sort of learn in this episode that she's not. They just caught her having a relationship with a Martha. So, I mean, we knew she was a lesbian, but we didn't, you know, we thought that like, at least I thought when she gets caught that, oh, she's got caught because she's a member of this sort of like resistance party. But right. they don't know that. They only know that she had this relationship with the Martha. They show the sort of sentencing and it's like really brutal because this, the Martha is sentenced to death. But then they say in the show, they're like, you know, normally this would be death, but you're fruitful, so we have to abide by that. And so she gets sentenced to what is it? redemption is what they call it. Right. Um, and I actually wasn't sure, does that mean death? Because, like, in some kind of, like, biblical senses, redemption can mean death. So I thought, right. actually, she was still being sentenced to death, but she's not. They drive her away. They drive the two of them together, which I was like, they would never do that. But right. they put the two of them in the back of the truck together. They go. They show—they um, have. They make her watch the Martha be hanged from a crane, which is also, like, not how I would have pictured it in the when I read the book. Right. Um, and they make it her actually, watch and then—go yeah. ahead. I, I I thought it was a really effective scene because I I was sort of like as a person who's read the book I was like what is going on like why are they in this van together what and then they like hang her from a crane which is like completely like despicable to watch and I think it like highlights the fact that we're looking at a modern society really well um, when a lot of the other sort of visual cues are very like it seems like oh are we in the past are we in the, you know like yeah. because it's such a weird like puritanical society. Um, I just thought it was it was really a great high note to end the episode on. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it's super exciting. I do think they've made a lot of choices like that to kind of remind us that this isn't like uh, we haven't gone back in time. Like right. in the grocery store, you know, it's these fluorescent lights. That's in the first episode. But there are all these fluorescent lights and it looks like a kind of dystopian but like regular grocery store. Right. And right. They, they've chosen to make everything look very modern in in that sense. Whereas in the book, I think it's often described as being almost like a New England reenactment town where everything is like wood and everything feels very old. Whereas right. here, you know, right, instead of them being hanged with this like rope that they describe and they really they really do a lot of description of the rope in the book. It's like from a crane that looks very modern and it, you know, they make her watch it. Um, which is, and then they, they show her, they take off Glenn to this sort of very white, sterile environment. And then we see Aunt Lydia show up. And, um, this is also when we see the, the interrogation scene with, um, Offred and the eyes where they mm-hmm. come in and they are asking her, basically saying like, did of Glenn ever try to like have sex with you? And she's like, no, that's not at all what happened. And she gets a little bit surly and sort of feisty in this scene, which is interesting too, because actually the character in the book, I don't know would, whether she would have done that. Right. Um, but she sort of says this moment, she has this moment where Aunt Lydia is like, blessed are the meek. And then June or off Glenn continues the scripture with what with the rest of it and that's when they start to really like zap her and beat her up and then um the wife runs in because she thinks she's pregnant and kind of like saves her in some way and then nick brings her ice and they have this very weird moment where he's like handing her ice and he's like i should have just driven off with you you know and they they have this thing although i will say that like nobody is kissing when they're supposed to kiss in the book they kiss like there's a kiss at the end of the scrabble game and there's a kiss here with nick and nobody's kissing so i'm sort of like you're gonna give the whole plot of the book away but no one's gonna kiss right um and then that's pretty much – so there's – let's see. 
I don't know what you think happens to her. Like she's she shows that she has this like bandage on her mm-hmm. like vagina. I'm assuming they like cut out her clit is what I'm assuming is happening. Yeah, I think it's like a female genital mutilation situation. I think because they was... say you're still going to be able to bear children, but you won't want right. what you can't have. Um, right. It's just yeah. I, I I think it's meant to be like, you know. I think yes, and and it's really horrifying. And then the episode ends with um another. A really curious song pop choice. song yeah 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 i think they're doing well, then that. there's those like there are all those shots of her face where she's like yes Dude, i really didn't, like was really confused by like what am i supposed to be feel like what is this supposed to be telling me mm-hmm. i didn't know if it was like are we moving forward in time and these are all just like different her in different time like over weeks or is it just like it's all from the same i don't know because like her hair was changing in it i was very confused and 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 it's really i think that they've gone to great lengths to um both of the main female characters are played by um, extremely attractive uh, actresses, and they've, you know, they're the way that they shoot them. The, the it's so stark, um, and they're wearing no makeup, um, and so her facial expressions in that last scene are like. I remember looking at it thinking like she looks horrific and she's like a beautiful woman. Um, yeah. But it's like, it's like clown, like the way that it's shot and the way that she's, you know, it clearly she's supposed to be, I mean, my guess is what they're showing us is someone who has lost her mind. Um, I mean, that's what it seems like to me. She seems in the space of like a day she's been like mutilated and her girlfriend has been hanged and she's now like in, you know, this hospital. I think that's, I think they're just sort of like highlighting that. Yeah. I mean, um, that's interesting. Maybe she comes back as like a, like, cause you know, we see Janine kind of like lose her grip on reality a little bit because of all of this. And like, we're not really sure there's a, there's that moment where Janine says that she's going to run away with her commander and the baby who she's named, Charlotte who's like you know and it's unclear if that's true or if she's just kind of lost it or like she's lost her grip on reality and I wonder if we're gonna have a see a similar thing with off Glenn who seemed like such a strong person and like a strong character from the beginning to sort of say like this can break anybody yeah no I mean I think it's definitely clearly they're showing us I think in a way better than they do in the book uh, um that this is a society that like drives these women completely crazy like they're not it's not a supportable infrastructure (laughs) like this is not gonna um it's not gonna hold and that's obvious I think from the way that and I think that you know Offred is sort of being um showed as like different but then there's also the sense that like you know is she fully together or not you know what I mean like she definitely seems to be teetering as well at certain points she certainly makes some choices that I think are um you know questionable in terms of like her own safety and stuff but at this point it's like she seems to have nothing to lose except for her life um which is like not that valuable <laughs> yeah yeah for her. yeah um so I think well, this episode too, we also get, sorry, just the, that protest scene, right? Where people, yeah. that's when like, which I think a lot of people picked up on when, you know, in some of the pre, I think it's in the promo and I think a lot of people picked up on it in some of the reviews of these is there's this protest where, you know, the army starts opening fire. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that 
felt very real to people who had just perhaps been to a protest right here. Yeah. I think that that, and that's not really something that comes up in the book exactly, right? Like there's not a one-to-one correlating scene. I know, I remember there's, um, there are some protests, but I feel like that this is not like an exact, like, yeah, I think in the book they talk about how her mom would go her to protest. Mother. Like she never went, but her mother went. And like, but the the most dangerous thing, I think that she comes back and she's got, you know, I think like tear gas or something. But I don't think they actually opened fire in the book. But I could be wrong about that. I should right. probably check that. Um, so I think that with the musical thing, what they're doing, at least from from my perspective, is because I find the show to be completely oppressive to watch. Um, I have read a lot of reviews that are basically raves. Um, I would have a really hard time raving about this right now only because, and I have spent my life consuming ultra depressing media. Um, I find this to be so dark. There's so little light in it. And I've, I watched like five seasons of the walking dead. Um, There's so little like hope in it that I think that the music offsets that a little bit. I think, but it feels so heavy-handed to me. Does it? Yeah, I mean, like it was so jarring the first time it happened. I literally just like jumped in my seat because I was like, what? like it's because it really wacky. pops you out, right? It's like because you're in this moment. I agree that it is like very oppressive. I do think that they do a good job of like showing you a little bit of joy in you know sometimes the handmaids will like make little jokes to each other or like she'll have little jokes in her you know narration or whatever which i think does kind of help do a little bit of lifting where you say like oh these are still people they still have you know whatever i mean when off glenn makes that joke when they're in the um birth mobile and she's like says something about like a carpet munching lesbian and i like laughed because i thought that was like you know they have these moments where they're allowed to be human and allowed to kind of talk to each other in a way that is not so oppressive but i agree it is like a really dark and suffocating show it's a suffocating book i mean there's not there's there's, it would be weird if the show wasn't suffocating because then it just would feel like it was completely disconnected from the source material right and i but i do think that the music like to me i just thought it was so jarring and so different there was that moment i actually thought a better use of music was when janine was singing to her baby when she starts and you start to realize what that song is and in they don't make this clear in the show and maybe it doesn't exist in the show but in the book they're not allowed to consume music like that right Right. like that is banned that is very banned so i was sort of as janine started singing that i was sort of like getting a little afraid because i was like oh is someone gonna come in and tell her to like stop right um because she's not supposed to know those songs that's not supposed to be something that she's allowed to know and so i thought that was a really effective use of music in that way and i feel like the sort of just jumping to like a jump cut of blaring music to me was like like i just couldn't get into it like it was just too jarring for me and it just like pulled me out entirely right no i think it does um but i do think that what i would love to hear what their reasoning for choosing um the uh, particularly the first song the second the one from uh the third episode i actually didn't know what it was um I believe that the Simple Mind song, Don't You Forget About Me, is from 1985, which is uh, the only thing that I know about it is that that's the same year that The Handmaid's Tale was originally published. And I think that um, in addition to lightening the mood a little bit, it, it, it again does remind us that like it's not 1890, <laughs> right? right? Like this is a society that was that produced um, music like this. And it may not do it anymore. Um, And I, I, I always like think, I feel like uh, there are other shows that have done this um, 
not enough. And so I kind of appreciate that reminder because I do think that when you're dealing with like alternate, um, not history, but like alternate future, um, it's really easy to just go, oh, what's a TV show? It like exists in some other universe. And I think that this is a, a good reminder of like, oh no, this is, they're on earth. They're in the United States. Like this, you know, um, the breakfast club was a movie that happened and, uh, that is the song that is, that, it, that ends it. Um, so I do think it's jarring, but I think it's, uh, I don't know. I would love to hear like why, you know, what their reasoning for it was, but those two things stick out to me as like why they would do it. Um, and we're definitely, you know, it's so jarring that it's definitely something that I assume they knew people would be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Moving, um, moving forward. <laughs> um, so there was like this big sort of kerfluffle, right, recently mm-hmm. about, I guess it was a Tribeca panel when on a bunch Saturday, of the cast yeah. members on, yeah, said that basically they were asked, you know, how do they, I forget what the exact question was, but it was sort of like, how does how do they square sort of feminism and this role? Did they pick the role because it was such a feminist book or a feminist show? And almost all of them kind of, they flubbed. Flubbed, yeah, and they, which is surprising to me because they must have known they were going to get that question. I mean, this is like such an obvious question to ask, but they basically all said, "Oh, something along the lines of, oh, I don't think this is feminist. I think, you know, you know, they'll say things like human women's rights or human rights, but then also, yeah. I'm not a feminist, but I am a feminist. But this show isn't feminist. I just liked it because it was a complicated character, and this is sort of a topic that a lot of people got angry about. I think having maybe not seen the show or maybe not been at the event, which like is always interesting to sort of see the internet react to something that they don't yeah. maybe have full information on. But I'm Margaret Atwood yeah. has engaged with this question for basically since the book was published. So I like, let's talk about, you know, is the, I mean, what does it even mean to be a feminist television show is kind of my question. Like, I actually don't know if that's like a thing. Um, but also uh, sort of like, how not. do you, like, <laughs> how do you answer these questions and how should they have answered these questions? So here's, I, I just want to go over what she said exactly. She said she was asked a, basically Elizabeth Moss was asked about who plays uh, Offred was uh, someone at this panel asked her about they said basically like you play like a lot of, you know, feminists, um, I guess, you know, Peggy Olson from Mad Men and, you know, now Offred in The Handmaid's Tale. And here's what she said. She said, honestly, for me, it's not a feminist story. It's a human story because women's rights are human rights. I never intended to play Peggy as a feminist. I never intended to play Offred as a feminist. They're women and they're humans. Offred's a wife, a mother, a best friend. So uh, people freaked out. Um, yeah. I believe it was originally like, uh, you know, someone who was actually at the panel said, oh, this is like, you know, confounding that she would say this. And I think you're right. Like they, Elizabeth Moss should have been prepared for this. Um, they all should have been. I mean, none of them gave a good answer to that question. Right. And then um, Margaret Atwood, who's really active on Twitter, sort of jumped in and said, she said two things, actually. She said, I would have added, here's what she said. Um... She said something like, you know, they should say it's not only a feminist story, it's also a human story, something like that. And then eventually people were, you know, still tweeting at her and she engages with like pretty much every egg that like tweets at her. She was like, they're actors, not writers. Um, They wanted to be inclusive. Like, let's just chill out. Um, I agree with Margaret Atwood. (laughs) Whoa. Um, So I I do think that... um, and it's not because I don't think Elizabeth Moss is not intelligent enough to give a better answer. I think that she is. I also, but I do think that for whatever reason, the word feminist continues to be 
uh, problematic for actors and actresses. We, I, I, I used to work at The Cut, which is the women's site for New York Magazine. We wrote so many articles about, you know, this actress or this musician says, I'm not a feminist, I'm a human. I mean, this is a very common fuck up for, you know, entertainers. Um, on the other hand- But Moss has said she's a feminist in the past, right? She's given interviews where she's like, I'm proud to say I'm a feminist, right. but, comma. <laughs> so here's- what I would say for people who are not now the people on Twitter, I believe are like you said, they're, they're fans of the book. The book has been read as a feminist. Like it's like one of the sort of linchpins of feminist literature. Um, since it was published, it sold like millions and millions of copies. It is, uh, definitely read as a feminist text. However, as a literary person, I would say, um, you know, Margaret Atwood wrote the book in 1985. Um, since then, she has a long history, and we're not going to have to read through them all, but she recently, like literally a week and a half ago, um, did an interview with The New Yorker where she herself sort of dances around this a little bit. Um, Here's the New Yorker article. Given that her works are a mainstay of women's studies curricula and that she is clearly committed to women's rights, Atwood's resistance to a straightforward association with feminism can come as a surprise. So Rebecca Mead, uh, the writer of the New Yorker profile, said, hey, look, she has a long history of of sort of being uh, a little wary of this term. So, and I would say, bringing it back to the show and the book, also problematic. I would say that, there is a lot of, there are a lot of feminist themes here, but uh, it's not like a straightforward um, tale of women's rights or of the patriarchy. The you know, and I think that that is part of the reason that Elizabeth Moss probably flubbed. Um, there are a lot of female oppressors in this show, um, and that is the most compelling um, aspect of the book and the show to me. And it stood out to me when I reread the book. Uh, a month ago. It's it's a problematic world. Patriarchies always are. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of like class things going on where, you know, the commander's wives are completely awful, right? Especially in the show. They're kind of more awful in the show than they are in um, in the book. They talk about the handmaids as, as what they are, which is slaves. Um, and so I think, yeah, I'm really compelled by this um, debate because I, I think you're right. I'm not sure. My, I think it's a good question. Like, can this be like a feminist TV show? I think, you know, I I do think Elizabeth Moss could have given a better answer, but I also think she's kind of right in a way. Um, I don't know. I mean, like to me, I, I feel like I'm often happy to give people the benefit of the doubt when they are asked a question that they maybe weren't prepared for and they don't give a great answer because, like, we've all been there, right? Where, like, someone's asked you a question and you're like, uh... I, I, like, I you do know, it all the time. Right? But, like, at the same time, I, it's hard for me to let her off the hook on this one because she had to have known that this would be a question that she was going to get. And she, like, to not prepare for this question, this very specific question, which, like, everyone has been talking about. It's been in all of these, you know, pre-release reviews of the show. It's a common conversation when it comes when the book comes up. Atwood's been asked this question a lot. You know, for her to not have an answer prepared that isn't, even if this is her answer, it's not well stated. I just feel like that is, like, it's hard for me to give her a pass on this one. It's not like the question came out of left field. She knew that this was going to happen, right? And yeah. like still couldn't give a good answer. So that's where my kind of like sympathy for her on this falls down a little bit. I think one of the things that's interesting to me about this conversation is that both Moss and Atwood have both 
presented this idea of, you know, there's this question of like, okay, but what does a feminist television show actually mean, right? Like, what is that? Does like, what does that entail? What would that look like? And both of them seem to think that a feminist television show or a feminist work of any kind is a work that only presents women in a positive light. And I think that that's actually just like a terrible definition of what a feminist television show would be. Because like this idea, and this is like the classic like trolls on Twitter idea of what feminism is, which is that women are good and men are bad. And that's what feminism is. And that's like not what it is at all. And like they're both smart enough people to know that that's not what it is. I think that they're sort of leaning back on that as an excuse to not have to engage with this question in sort of like a more meaningful way. But like they both have said things. I mean, to me, both of these women are like peak, like white, feminism, which -hmm. is that, like, they're really happy to wear the sweatshirt that says, you know, wild feminist or says, like, you know, the future is female or whatever. But as soon as they're actually asked to engage in that as a political act, they claim that, oh, it's not political. Um, And, you know, I think um, Wood said something about politics um, that really, like, bothered me about this, where she basically says, you know, I'm not a feminist. What did she say? Uh, I'm going to let me find this, like, quote. Um, Because she says something like, you know, I'm happy to be a feminist, but, you know, I don't want to be political. And, like, that's only white people can be like, oh, I'm happy to be a feminist, but, like, I don't like politics because, like, I just care about humans. It's like politics is about humans. Politics determines how humans are treated in the world. And this show of of all shows shows that, right, that, like, these people took over and did this thing and now humans are treated in a very different way. So I think to me, like, neither of them are really engaging with, A, the definition of feminism in an honest way and, B, sort of, like, what it would really mean to have a feminist piece of art or piece of television. And, like, that bothers me because they're both smart people. Like, they're both very smart people, I think. And they just have decided that, like, they're not going to go there, which I don't know if, like, I think Atwood does whatever she wants. I don't think she cares. But I don't know if Moss has been, like, told not to go there as, like, don't you know, don't get too political. You know, this is like a TV show we want people to watch or whatever. But, I mean, even the executive producer of the show in that same um, panel, um, or maybe it was a different panel. I think No, I think it was the same one. The executive producer said, you know, and he actually gives gives away a line that hasn't been shown yet on the on the three episodes that we've seen. But apparently uh, the commander says something or offered to something. She says, don't be sorry, do something. And he's like, that's what I want people to take away from that. That's political. If you're asking people to do something, don't be sorry, do something. That is a political thing. That is you're asking people to engage in a way that isn't just like putting on a sweatshirt that says I'm a feminist or whatever it is. Right. And my I, I mean, I think, yeah, I it's it's it is a strange sort of dissonance to like hear Elizabeth Moss, it's like, were you sleeping while you were filming this? Because <laughs> what she memorized her lines somehow. Say, I don't expect <laughs> her to say like this is a feminist show, but like the entire thing is about the entire society has been retooled to deny most women their rights. The most important part of female, you know, is it, reproductive rights. Um, it, which is like a current battleground. I don't think, you know, I've thought this so many times. Like, why do you think that Margaret Atwood set The Handmaid's Tale in the United States? She is not, um, she is Canadian. Um, you know, and when you come back to that in 1985, it's like, oh, it's because this is a this is a serious, you know, abortion and like reproductive rights, birth control rights have been, you uh, you know, a battleground in U.S. politics, uh, like consistently since the 80s. 
um, since Roe v. Wade passed in 1972, I believe. Um, but you know, it's just, it's never been a topic that has not been up for debate. And so what we're always coming up against, what we're always pushing up against is the question of, do women have the right to control their own bodies? And Margaret Atwood's answer in this story is no, they don't. And in fact, there it's, you know, it's, you know, it's clear at every point, uh, if they disobey death, if they're gay death, if they try to escape death. So, it is weird that she's portraying a, you know, such a clearly cutthroat, um, it couldn't really be a starker form of patriarchy. Well, she even says it, right? So there's this yes. piece that she wrote herself in the New York Times. <laughs> yes. And she says, quote, true, a group of authoritarian men seize control and attempt to restore an extreme version of the patriarchy in which women, like 19th century American slaves, are forbidden to read. So, like, she admits that this is a patriarchy that is evil. Right. Like, I don't understand how you—that's not feminist. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I just don't understand how you can then be like, no, no, it's a human story. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I do think that Margaret Atwood's tweet where she said, oh, you know, they're not writers, they're actors, they just want to be inclusive. I think it gets to a heart of something— I do think there is a long history of actors and actresses not wanting to alienate possible viewers. They're they're kind of, you know, they're kind of up there as salespeople in a way. And I think that um there is a long uh continuous thread and I think like Mar- Margaret Abbott is uh I don't know how old she is, 80 maybe. Um she has been around long enough to have um really complicated answers to these questions. I think that, and like, again, I'm not trying to excuse them for flubbing, but I am trying to explain why I understand that they did just having seen this happen so many times and watch women, um, disappoint, (laughs) particularly white women, um, disappoint in this particular way. Um, but you know, I do think that one of the things that I have noticed about the show is that, um, and really, there aren't a lot of male characters. All of the really terrifying characters are... Serena Joy is, like, pretty... She's revealed to be pretty horrific um, mentally, I think. In the third episode, there's this, like... She does this, like, 360 when she, she's being extremely sweet when she thinks that Offred is pregnant and then completely turns into a nightmare bitch um, when she finds out that she has gotten her period. Um, and, of course, Aunt Lydia is... Um, Actually, Joshua, I'm watching the show with, kept going like, why is Aunt Lydia in all the shitty scenes? It's like she shows up everywhere, right? Like she's at all of the worst points in the show where, you know, it's like Aunt Lydia is the only person who like is in charge of the handmaids. She's like the only staff member. I definitely think (laughs) she is – and the actress who plays her is amazing. She seems like – I think of like Kathy Bates in Misery. It's just like a psychotic – and – but the ma- the male characters there's there's really Nick and uh, Fred, <laughs> <laughs> Commander Waterford, Fred, who like we've seen in really uh, he's um, either like l- sort of lurching around quietly in the background looking sad. Um, we've seen him like the pumping really slowly and sadly. I know, so weird. He's got his like hands on his hips. It's like the least sexual sex scene I've ever seen. I think that's intentional, right? Because that's like how they describe it in the book too, where you're just like, yeah. God, can we all just be done with this? Right. Because it's weird because it's not sexy, but also it doesn't look like a rape scene, which is basically what it is. Um, yeah. 
it is, it's fucked up. And it is really, it's kind of, seeing it visually was kind of like, because I knew it was coming, I was kind of like, and it, maybe it's in the trailer actually. Um, it's pretty, it's almost funny because like I said, he's sort of like sadly pumping. Um, but, and then. <laughs> that is the best description of it. Sadly yeah. pumping. <laughs> and, then he's in, and then he's in the, um, you know, in the Scrabble scene. Uh, he seems completely if he's the symbol, if he's like our only link to like male oppression outside of the men holding guns who are clearly just soldiers, um, he's clearly like powerful. They have money. They're, they're people, there are people in the society that have some power. Um, he seems flaccid and pathetic and sad and it's unclear why. Um, and he's like, he's, he's that way in the book too. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually, I think he, and at first I didn't like his character in the show. And then I was thinking about it and I actually think it's perfect because he is that guy who like, doesn't really realize how bad things are for a lot of other people and just thinks like, well, what's the problem? Like everything. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's not as good, you know, there may be some, maybe some, not everybody wins, but like, it's fine. I mean, like dudes on the internet tell that to women all the time, right? Like, right. oh, what's the problem? You're fine. You know, like what's, it, I haven't it, seen it. Her husband sort of shown that way too, or in the flashbacks. Yeah, like Luke is like the problematic ally where he like kind of cares, but he kind of doesn't. He's like, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. And they're like, right. yeah, fuck you. <laughs> right. And I think that the show is actually doing that part beautifully because I think it's really easy to miss that. I think it's so. And this is where I like I'm not again, I'm not trying to make uh, any, uh, you know, excuses for Elizabeth Moss. But I do like, I you know, the, the male. <laughs> no <character> excuses. <laughs> the characters are really complicated. They're really problematic in ways that are are multifaceted. I I think that when you have all of the male characters are to the extent that they're developed, which is not great. I was um, never good at writing men. That's like not her skill set. I mean, are, do good like yeah, but like do good men exist? <laughs> <laughs> No, true. Fair enough. <laughs> so I think that like they're, she's, I feel like she's always giving them more credit than they deserve, right? Like, why do I feel a sympathy for Fred? I do feel it. I feel sympathy. No, for I don't. Him. I feel bad for him, and I'm not sure why. Like, no, they I definitely, definitely are don't. making him. I don't feel actually bad for him. Like, I would definitely <laughs> kill him if I could. <laughs> but I do feel like they're making him. I mean, I think that one of the things that comes through in the book and that sort of is coming through early in the show is that it is hard to get around the basic sexual building block dynamic between men and women, even in a society that's fucked up, right? They do that with Janine and her commander, whether it's in her head or not, she believes that she's like in love with him. And that they're going to like run away together and she's going to, you know, because I think that humans need affection and they need contact with other people and they'll take it wherever they can get it. And so this fucked up dynamic between, I don't think that they're showing that there's much of an attraction between Offred and Fred, but I think that there, there's definitely a glimmer of it, right? Yeah, I mean, she talks about this in the book, right? That, like, at, at some point when you've had no actual, like, sort of sensitive touch, you know, obviously the, like, sad pumping is not, doesn't count. But, like, you'll take anything, right? Because you're just, like, right. you, she just, like, wants to be touched, right? In, in, like, any kind of, like, affectionate way. But I do want to go back because I, I, I want to question the idea that, like, if there are sympathetic male characters and very unsympathetic female characters that the, that it, that it is no longer feminist, right? I don't think that that's true. No, it's I think that, like. Not. 
Because I think that's the way that, like, you know, Moss and, and Atwood are talking about it. They often say things like, well, you know, a feminist book would be all the women are great and all the men are terrible. I'm like, that's just like not that's not, I think, true at all. And so I think like the idea that you have these I mean, and in the epilogue of the book where they kind of go through the sort of more scholarly like mm-hmm. thing, they do have a moment where they talk about how every sort of oppressive society and regime you know, utilizes the underrepresented to oppress themselves, right? It, whether it's yes. women oppressing women, whether it's indigenous people, you know, whatever it is. That like, I mean, that is, is classic. the most basic troll argument that you can bring up. When I, last year at some point, I wrote an article about how I was going to vote for Hillary Clinton in the um, Democratic primary because I was a woman. And without fail, I still occasionally get a comment that says, well, why didn't you vote for Sarah Palin then? And it's like, Hey, fuck you. That's not what I'm saying. Um, you know, reading like, is really hard. <laughs> reading is hard. There are shades to arguments. And because just because you're a feminist does not mean that you will vote for any woman, right? Like what you will vote for are women who work on behalf of other women. At a certain point, you can argue women cease to act as women, right? If you're that, and that is what I would argue in certain, you know, I mean, I do think that with Serena, again, I think there are complicated portrayals here. I think with like Serena Joy, they're showing a woman who clearly is oppressed herself, but in a much different way, right? And she is also acting as an oppressor. And that does not seem that complicated to me. I'm used to like reading and consuming complicated portrayals. And I don't think that just because not every man is a complete psychotic nightmare in the like they are in real life. Right. It doesn't mean that like <laughs> this is not a feminist story. Yeah, um, no, I agree. I agree. I was just pointing out that like that sort of seems to be the argument that some of them are falling back on, which oh, is yeah, like which sure. I think is insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess not insane. That's ableist. Is they're not, not true. they're like not all menning. Exactly. That's exactly what they're doing. And I guess as I was reading these interviews, and there's that one with Moss and Atwood where they're they sort of interview each other a little bit. Um, it really felt like I was reading like a terrible YouTube comment section where I was like why? Why? Like you are two very powerful women who have like actual voice to be able to say things. And you, instead you're going, well, I just care about humans equally. Right. Like, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> I do think that when I think that there's been this long his, history of trolls and this is pre-internet trolls, even um, men demonizing feminists as these, you know, sort of man hating uh, and of course, you know, some feminists do hate men, but not all of them. I hate men. I hate <laughs> men too, but I'm like, I'm married to one, you know, like there, I, I know, per, I, I, I have like four or five. Men I have like some hate. male friends, like, right. like one or two. I've known like a couple of men that weren't horrible. Yeah. Um, but I think that like there's been such a long demonization of that word as like, I mean, it's like, it's like the way that like uh, Sean Hannity talks about feminine, fe- feminism. There's a, Feminazis. Or, yeah. Uh, feminism is a, a cancer, right? That's what Milo used to say. Um, Probably still back, does say. Back when he existed. I'm glad he doesn't exist anymore. I'm really glad he's just but, um, disappeared. <laughs> and I think that to a certain extent, strong, intelligent, extremely well-read women have bought into that and they have been scared off from the word. And I think that it's dangerous and I think that it should stop. And I think that you will see in the next, I would, I would make a prediction that either Elizabeth Moss will cease to answer questions like this, or she will come up with a better answer. Um, I do think that this question's not going to go away because I think um, 
you know, the story be, I have no idea where it's going from here. Um, and I think that that's something that we should talk about next, but I, you know, because the timing, um, of these episodes is very strange. If you do know the basic framework of the story, um, I don't, so I don't know where it's going from here, but I know that the, 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 the main themes are, um, they are what they are and they are 100% about, um, the patriarchy and the relationships between men and women and what it means when, when birth is at, you know, such a rare thing. Um, and I think that like, this is a thing that I've, I've, I've come up against. I, I talked to someone about, they said, Oh, it does seem pretty far fetched, but it actually really doesn't, um, to me. Was that I person th- a man? Yes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just throwing it out there. No, I mean, it, it, it is crazy. I don't think, you know, I mean, I have some sympathy for the male gaze in that, like, they actually literally don't know what it's like to think um, in terms of, like, you know, birth control, I've often thought, is, like, the most revolutionary invention in history. And I, I said this to my husband once, and he was like, really? Like, more than the wheel? I was like, absolutely, because it changed the entire history of like the way that genders could interact with one another. If you can stop yourself from getting pregnant, you can change your whole fucking life. You can have a career. You can, um, <laughs> you know, you can get a car and you can go places. But if you're stuck having baby, we're only two generations out from women having 10 or 12 babies, right? My grandfather had nine siblings. Um, and I don't think it was because his mom wanted to have like a thousand children. I think she literally didn't know how not to. Yeah. And so I think that uh, in the space of just a few generations, we have really changed everything. And in terms of women, things have gotten a lot better. I think if you're a man, it's like actually you have to think really hard about <laughs> you have to think in order to be able to come around to how badly um you know how much these things matter i think it's it's very easy for men to not really think about what it would mean if women lost reproductive rights if they lost the access to birth control or if it was further restricted or if abortion rights were overturned i think men don't really think about it as the they just i just don't think that they understand that this is something that women think about literally every day of their adult lives there was a, a survey recently. I'm going to pull it up. Uh, oh, yeah. So there was a survey recently that's 52% of men say they haven't benefited from women having affordable birth control. 52% of men are very wrong about They're that. virgins. <laughs> yeah. Like, They're but virgins. Just, I think that, like, totally backs you up. It's a, like, I think that they just, like, haven't really had to engage with that question or, like, haven't really had to think through specifically step by step. How has this made my life easier? Like, how have I been able to go on Tinder dates and not had to be like, oh, I might have kids now? Right? Like, right. you just, you know, I just don't think they've engaged with that. And I do think that, like... You know, I would totally agree with you that birth control is, you know, the most, I think it's like refrigeration, probably number one, birth control, maybe number two, yeah. like in terms of just like things that have completely changed. Our like, enti- yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like it is, it's totally different. But I mean, I've made this argument many times that like women's inventions that are related to women just don't get counted in the same way, right? That they're just like less important to people because they just think, oh, it doesn't, that doesn't count in the world of invention because it's for lady people. Um, yeah. But I think that like... I mean, in terms of, sorry, just to, I think we're going to start to, like, wrap us up a little bit. Um, I mean, I guess, like, 
on this question of like, you know, how, how do these characters, I mean, these are really complicated characters, which I think is what made the book, at, you know, originally so successful, right? It's a really interesting look at this thing and the way that it changes people and makes people. And in the book, you know, she admits, the main character admits that like, She's not super proud of the way that she's behaved, right? That she, like, hasn't necessarily, you know, she didn't fight. She didn't, you know, try to join the resistance. She didn't, you know, do all these things that maybe she should have or could have done to Mm -hmm. do something about her situation. She just kind of goes along to get along, and she's a little bit ashamed of that in the book. And I think that, like, that is sort of the thing that is interesting, I think was interesting to people when the book came out, is that it's a really complicated depiction of this world. No one is really good in a lot of ways. There aren't really any hero characters. Maybe Nick is a little bit of a hero character in the book, but we don't really know. Or another character who we haven't really seen that much of yet, which is Moira. Right. I'm very curious about what when we get to see her again, because I definitely think she's alive and I definitely think we're going to see her again and I think she's going to come back in a big way. Yeah, and I think she sort of offsets um, Offred in a way. I think that Offred is uh, yeah, she's like a very classic like problematic hero in that like she is the protagonist, but only because she like survives, right? She's telling us the story. So in wherever that comes to us, she's survived. And people who survive often do it by complicity, you know? And I think that, um, you know, that like, again, I think that wherever the show is going, I, I, I hope that there's a lot more Moira in it. And I do think that, you know, it, a, a lot of it can be, a lot of the way that she behaves can sort of be explained by something which they really have not focused on yet, which is that she does not know um, if her daughter is alive or not. And that is in the book, she brings it up a bunch, you know, that is sort of why she is trying to um, fit into this world and not go crazy is that she wants to know what happened to her. Yeah, I do think that's interesting is that we have very little about the daughter at all. Yeah. And we also have nothing about the mom. I think the mom was just cut entirely from from the show. But yeah. like, to me, the daughter, it's like such a huge piece of the book. And yeah. I know for people like is such a like thing that they remember. And, that yeah. you know, there's a moment in the book, which might show up in the show, which I guess we won't spoil for people. But there's a moment involving the daughter that like, I keep waiting for it to happen. I'm, like, very curious how they're going to handle it in the show. Because, right, we don't really – we see her, you know, we see her get taken away. We see her as, like, an infant. Mm -hmm. But we haven't really even seen the main character, like, grapple with that. Or, like, there's not a lot of – I mean, the voiceover, I think, in the show is a little bit odd because it only comes in very sparsely. And it doesn't – it feels like kind of a little bit of a, like, we're stuck here and we're going to just use this to move us along in the show a little. But, like, it does – in the book, it's so much of her internal thoughts are about – the daughter, right? And about like how she needs to make sure that she gets – that she survives so she can go back to her and find her. Yes. Um, and we get almost none of that so far. Right. And I can't tell if that is – clearly like the thing we were saying with, with – with, with in, in the – particularly in the flashbacks right before um, she's taken uh, with Luke, it does seem intentional that they're not really focusing on – uh, her daughter. But then again, I'm not sure, you know, as since I've become a mother, I have noticed television shows tend to be very, very bad about, um, sort of keeping that in mind in this show. It would be very strange if they're not keeping it in mind since it is a show about, I mean, I would suggest after saying, if someone said, what is the handmaid's tale about? Um, after saying feminism, (laughs) I would say it is about, (laughs) it is, it is about a mother who loses her child. I think that, that stands out to me. Uh, interestingly, the first time I read it, I didn't really see it that way. I sort of glossed over it. Now I have a daughter. She's three. 
And I read the book and was like completely horrified by it. I know that Margaret Atwood had a child by the time she wrote this. And I think that it's ever present in the book and not so much in, in the show, though the moments with the daughter, again, are very excruciating. Yeah, it's funny. I I don't have any kids, and so I think to me, it's that's less of like a painful thing to watch. Yeah. But I hearing you say it, I'm like, oh, obvious. Like that's clear. But I do think that like the motherhood question is one that like I'm excited to hear people talk about because that is something that like I didn't even really think about it until you brought it up in an earlier conversation that we had. And now thinking about it, I'm like, oh, wow. yeah. Like if I had and a kid, I, I think it would be so much harder. Yeah, and I think that it's gonna come up in the show. Totally. That they're and I'm just sort of waiting for it to be because I'm very interested to see how it's you know, how it's addressed. Yeah. Should we end with predictions for the next episodes? Yeah. I'd love to hear your prediction because I have no idea <laughs> what is happening next. Yeah. I So I don't, I feel like my prediction is that the next character we're going to see really developed is Moira. Mm-hmm. Um, just because we got more of her in the last one when she's, or in the last two, when she's sort of arguing with Nick and we see them running and we see like that she's in those scenes. Yeah. And I feel like, we're going to get more of her either in flashback form or maybe in person. I don't know. They've moved through so much of the book's content that yes. I feel like there's some of the main things that are left are Moira things, which I and Fred <laughs> and Fred. Fred's coming back, right? He has, he was not even was Fred even in the last episode at all. I don't even think he was in it. Oh right, Fred oh, right, went he's in away. Washington. Right, he's in Washington. He went yeah, away. yeah, I forgot. Um, Fred's out of town and <laughs> while he's out of town, the, everything fell apart. We do need to get Fred back. See, men are good. <laughs> I also wonder at what point we're going to get more of Nick, like, cause he's very mysterious and I think intentionally so he like, you don't really know what to make of him a lot of the time. Like, is right. he good? Is he bad? He clearly has a lot of information somehow. Mm-hmm. And then we know that like often the drivers are eyes, so he might be part of the eyes, but then he seems to be very like kind to her. So I think we're going to maybe see more of him. But I I do think that in the next couple episodes, we'll see a, a lot more of Moira. Or I'm, at least I'm hoping because I really like that character in the book I really like. And I, I liked, I've liked her so far in the show. Amazing. Um, Very good. So I, I that's my prediction is, is we're going to get more Moira. I've actually never had this experience. It's a really interesting and very exciting experience now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing the next episode because I've read the source material and I, st- I really am not sure what they're doing. You know, they've, um, they've added pieces and taken away pieces, I think, in a really compelling way so far. Um, and like you said, they've covered so much of the ground um, that is in the book that uh, I'm really excited to see the way that they sort of fill this out. Yeah, me too. I, it is fun because normally I feel like when you've read the book, you know, with like, what is it, Pretty Little Lies or whatever, you kind of know generally what's happening. Um, Ugh, I didn't read that beforehand. I knew nothing about it. Oh, it I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it was still – the show is still great. But like when you've read the book, no, it's pretty right. – like it's pretty much on on pace, right? Whereas this, I was like – even by the second episode, I was like, oh, we are doing other things, which I actually really appreciate because I think yeah, it's really interesting. And you have to, I think, with this book. There's no way to not – add stuff because it just doesn't like the the context of that first of the book is just too narrow I think for a show to really work yeah definitely all right that's episode one thanks for listening (laughs) Uh, you can subscribe on apple podcasts or find more ways to subscribe at theoutline.com we'll be back in a week and every week for new episodes I'm Laura June I'm Rose Eveleth under his eye under his eye